Welcome back to the show. And in this episode, we feature our second part of my interview with Galen Nadal. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Coming back to what we talked about, the polarizing debates about life insurance and in particularly whole life insurance. So I'm going to put it in terms that physicians will understand. In your mind, what are the indications for life insurance? What, what are the reasons that when you're sitting down with your clients, you know, Bob, uh, here's, here's your plan. Here's what we want to do based on your goals and, and your aspiration. Here's why I would like to recommend XYZ insurance. Typically, what are those broad indications? And we don't get to need to get into the weeds here, but just broad indications of why, how you would come and engage in a discussion of insurance. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, great question. And the first indication is, is one that I mentioned earlier of, you know, who would be impacted financially and to what extent if you were to pass away? And that's where I start to figure out what total amount of life insurance would someone need such that their family would not be impacted financially to the extent that they want it. So that's why I start with, or in the near future, like I said, for residents, sometimes we have to project a few years into the future when maybe they're going to have more obligations financially. So maybe it makes sense to lock in a little bit more now. Then I work my way backwards to, you know, what types of insurance make the most sense, you know, like term, like a lot of my clients end up with quite a bit of term to help manage the total um, problem the, to solve the total problem of the financial impact of a death. And then, but then we work our way backwards to, you know, um, you know, so, so the indication would be is if someone has a family and a mortgage and debt and they want them all taken care of, if something happens to them, like that's pretty straightforward. The other one that's maybe not so common is if someone, um, I mean, legacy is a big one. Like anyone who has any desire for legacy, life insurance probably makes sense. Um, I've met a lot of people who have built their portfolio of um, properties as their way of creating their own pension. Like I, I have, I've have clients who have like ten properties, and that's their pension plan. And then they sat down with me, and I just said, "Okay, cool. Like, what do you want to happen? What do you want to have happen to this little em- this empire? I shouldn't say little. This empire of buildings when you pass away. Oh, I want my kids to take over this as like a sort of annuity or like their own income stream." I was like, "Well, okay. Who's going to pay the taxes?" Like, which of those properties are you going to sell so that you can pay the taxes on all the growth on these properties? Because of, you know, you mentioned like, you know, uh, properties, properties, there's a lot of tax implications. So that's another, uh, you know, kind of a bit of a no brainer. Um, if anyone knows that they're going to have massive amounts or, or if they're planning well enough to, to, to not run out of money before they pass away, is that money going to be in taxable accounts like RSPs? Do they want to have some life insurance that's going to swoop in and take care of that tax bill? So those are the indications for the, the life insurance need. Then I start looking at, okay, if it's a long-term problem, like a mortgage is not a long-term problem. Like most people, you know, they're going to pay off their mortgage before they retire. So that's not a long-term problem. Kids growing up, moving out of the house. So a lot of people have like this lump of need 
while they're, you know, let's say like starting practice to retirement, there's a bit of a lump there of I'm going to replace my income. Uh, I'm going to, you know, pay off my mortgage if something happens to me. Um, my spouse is going to still, or partner is going to be able to send our kids to university. But then, so that's that short-term lump. The longer-term lump is anyone who has any desire to have any sort of long-term legacy or offset the taxes, the inevitable taxes of doing a really good job of, you know, creating wealth and having wealth when one passes away. Like in Canada, if you've got wealth when you pass away, you're paying some taxes. So does it make sense to, 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 to take care of that before you pass away? And the last thing I'll say is it's a totally separate conversation, but if there's any, any possibility of anything like probate um, or any sort of estate entanglement from blended families and things like that, then life insurance also probably makes a lot of sense because it's something that bypasses the will, the personal will entirely. So it's something that you can have a lot of control over. Okay, now that, that is a good three indications. If you don't mind, I'll just summarize that. One is the, the value of the death benefit for a short-term uh, goal. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one would be the long-term goal in terms of tax planning and estate and legacy. Mm-hmm. And the third one would be, well, in terms of assigning a beneficiary and avoiding the probate. Those would be the three indications. Am I correct uh, in summarizing yeah. it that way? Yeah, for sure. And and just to clarify, the probate one is like life insurance pays out very quickly. So if someone hasn't, so some people do want their estate, like their assets to flow through the estate for different reasons, but it's going to take time for that to settle. So if someone wants their beneficiaries to have money quickly, then life insurance is probably one of the best ways to do that. Right. And just a short word about probate. So not only does it take time, it could take somewhere between six to 12 months to go through the courts, oh, yeah. go through the uh, to go through the executor. Uh, now with COVID and everything being delayed, it may take even longer than, than 12 months. Yeah. But also, if your assets have to go through probate, there's a certain tax on it. Uh, and depending, depending on how much you have in assets. So if I'm going to say, you know, most physicians, by the time they are dead, <laughs> um, they've probably accumulated somewhere between two to 10 million, depending again on how, how hard you mm-hmm. work and what specialty you're in. And what is the probate fee nowadays? Uh, 1.5%. 1.5%. So you've got someone who's got an asset, a remaining asset of, let's say, 10 million. Well, 1.5% is a lot of dollars gone yeah. to gone to um, the courts. And so um, one of the ways to save on that is definitely life insurance. But that's mm-hmm. that's a smaller part. Yeah. yeah. In my mind, the biggest part is the tax planning. Yeah. Uh, the tax planning. Because I, I keep saying this on my podcast, uh, but people don't realize this. The biggest tax bill we will ever pay is the day before death. Absolutely. Right. And so if that's the biggest tax bill we will have to have to pay is upon death, but we're already dead. So who's going to pay for that tax bill? Obviously our children. Mm -hmm. And so if you really don't want to leave a bunch of financial mess to your kids, life insurance is probably one of the good solutions to avoid leaving your children and your estate a huge financial mess. Um, And and insurance is one of those things that, that is out there to do that. And that's why when people say, you know what, uh, buy term and invest the rest. Well, yeah, you could buy term, but term doesn't take you all the way to the end. No. 
and if you invest the rest, you could, half of it will be gone in taxes. And then the other half is used to pay the, the tax man. And so what else is left for your, for your estate and the legacy? Probably not much. And so having a buy term and invest the rest strategy is not a very tax efficient strategy. No. So now that we talked about that a little bit, let's, let's jump right into whole life. Give us a quick synopsis, you know, fundamentals, what, what whole life is about. Yeah, for sure. And what I'll do is um, to to be very specific, I'm talking about uh, participating whole life insurance. So it's a specific kind of whole life insurance. We also refer to it as investment grade whole life insurance. So that I'm not talking about something else called universal life. Like I'm talking about participating whole life insurance. Um, So nuts and bolts of whole life insurance. Yeah. So basically, um, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to these things. So the formula that mandates uh, whole life insurance has actually been around for hundreds of years. It was created to uh, take care of uh, widows and orphans uh, once upon a time. So it's a pretty interesting history behind it. Uh, but whole life insurance has been around in Canada since like the 1840s, I believe. So uh, it predates modern tax legislation, which makes it a very interesting product because it doesn't fall under the same rules of taxation that investments do. So at the end of the day, um, it's, it's similar to term in that you put some money in and there's a death benefit assigned to it. So if someone were to start a whole life insurance policy and pass away, they would get a death benefit. What's different whole life and term insurance is that um, it's, you know, to get the same death benefit for whole life insurance would cost more because there's an investment component to it where, well, two reasons. One is if you keep paying for your whole life insurance, you're going to get the payout. Whereas with term, a lot of times, once people get to their 50s or 60s, the cost of term insurance keeps increasing and it gets to a point where it doesn't make sense to have it anymore. Whereas whole life insurance, um, you know, that's something you keep your whole life. Um, so it has an investment component. So you put in a deposit or a premium every year. And then uh, there's a crossover point where the amount of money that you've put in is now available as cash value of the life insurance policy. And what you can do with that cash value is you can, uh, you can do lots of things with it, but a lot of people, what they plan on doing is borrowing against it either quickly or over a long period of time or leaving it. Like you can either borrow against it or not borrow against it. And if you look at it from the investment side, it's comparable to a fixed income investment. It's very similar to like, if you, if you looked at the volatility of it, the stability of it, uh, the, the rate of return of it, it should be compared to something like a GIC because it's very stable. It's one of the most stable asset classes in the world. It's rated a AAA asset. Companies that have a participating account, it's rated as a AAA asset. And the cool thing about it is everyone who is has one of these policies, they're putting their deposits in every year. And that's put into a big pooled fund that is then invested. And most companies have a pooled fund in the neighbor in, in the billions of dollars. And they take that money and they invest it mostly in a fairly conservative way. Um, Some companies, depending on the company, it's a little bit more of a balanced approach or maybe a little bit more, but it's usually fairly conservative. Sometimes they loan that money to large institutions. Like um, if if an airport needs a renovation, sometimes they'll go to a participating fund of an insurance company and say, hey, can you loan us a couple like millions of dollars, $100 million to like renovate the airport, hospitals, um, different things like that. And then as those things are generating revenue, those get sent back to the the holders of the policies in the form of a dividend, in a form of a guaranteed component of growth every year, 
and in the form of a dividend component of growth every year. And the last thing I'll say for now, uh, you know, and you can ask me whatever else you want me to talk about, is that once that growth, like I said, there's a crossover point where the amount of money you've put in is now available as a cash value, um, that cannot be clawed back. Like it's called vested. So, so if I've got a cash value in a policy of let's say $50,000, the next year, that's my new floor is $50,000. Like it can't drop below that point. It can, and then it, that next year's amount gets tacked on and so on and so forth. You know, I think most carriers right now are offering somewhere between, you know, the rate of return is somewhere between 5.75 to 6.25 um, in terms of the return on, on that, on that, uh, on that policy. And we think about GICs, they're what giving one point something, maybe 2%. So when you think about and you're comparing oranges to oranges and you're comparing a fixed income to another fixed income, it's potentially three times what a GIC will offer you. And so for, for individuals who are more conservative and who likes to participate in fixed income type of investment, this is just an investment, sort of an investment on steroids if you do compare oranges to oranges or apples to apples, depending which fruit you like. Yeah, so, for sure. And, and, and one thing I'll very quickly say is uh, the other big thing between fixed income. So a lot of times what my clients end up doing is holding this inside of their corporation. That's the vast majority of people with corporations. They say, I want this inside of my corporation because I can use corporate dollars. I can use dollars that have not been personally taxed to put into this. So if you took, if you got a dollar of growth in, in a GIC inside of your corporation, 53 cents would go to taxes because you're, you're taxed at the top marginal tax rate from first dollar, basically. Um, like I won't go into the weeds with taxation and all that, but not only would you get a lower rate of return, you'd send a whole bunch of it to taxes. Whereas with whole life insurance, since it's because it has special tax treatment, you don't have to pay any taxes as it grows. It gets to sit inside of the corporation and grow without being taxed as it grows. So it's like the difference between a tree that every year you chop a bit of it off and then it has to like recover. It just gets to keep compounding inside of the corporation. So I just wanted to add that in as a, like, just to be really clear about uh, where people hold it and the benefits. Well, no, that, that, that's uh, crucially important because it touches upon the use of a life insurance and how you actually do your tax planning, which is why I, I mentioned those two together. So absolutely mm -hmm. important point to bring up. So now let's talk about the, the cash value sitting inside this policy. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a few things in passing. We talked about collateralizing it in terms of using that cash value. So I am one to say, okay, I want to use this as both my risk mitigation vehicle, mm -hmm. but I want to also use this as a tax planning vehicle. And I also want to use this as quote unquote investment vehicle. And obviously the investment and the growth is a hundred percent tax-free because it's sitting inside this policy. And I want to maximize that component. I want to mm -hmm. maximize that component of investment. Now there's, how do I do that with a policy? How do you help Someone like myself, your clients who comes to you and say, this, Galen, that's what I would like to do. That's my goal. How do you help them design a policy like that? Because you mentioned it's a Swiss knife. You mentioned, and, and an insurance policy is a contract. So there are things we can do to, to modify, to, to design it to the way that meets my goal. It's not a mm -hmm. bland, it's not a bland term policy. So how do you help your clients? What are the things that you can do to meet those goals with a policy like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great question. And and what's really cool is that if if you, you know, if we had had this conversation 10 years ago, it would have gone very differently than it was it would go today because companies have done a really great job of making these policies far more flexible than they used to be. And I'll go into a little bit of detail of what that looks like. So once upon a time, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. Some advisors still approach this as a very um, in, inflexible uh, thing where they'll just say, hey, you put X number a year into this thing for 20 years, then you're done paying for it. And there's no flexibility around how much you're putting in. There's no flexibility about how much is going towards the cash value. Those are people that just don't haven't done a lot of work on figuring out all the different options that are available. So when you hear about whole life insurance, you'll oftentimes hear about properly structured uh, whole life. And what that means is that so, so let's just use an example of a premium. So a, a, an annual deposit into a whole life insurance policy inside of a corporation. And I'm going to use a number, um, I'll say $20,000 a year. So at the end of the day, I've come to the, I've worked with a client and it looks like to meet their estate planning goals and like, and a potential to supplement retirement with some of the money from their insurance policy, we've come up with a number of 20,000 a year goes into this policy. Now, if I were to just not do anything, the $20,000 would just go into like a default version of this whole life policy. Like you would just kind of go in and then a certain amount would go towards cash value. A certain amount would go towards that death benefit. And I, and we wouldn't have any active say in how much is going there. And we also wouldn't have any say as to how much the premium, like the premium would be fairly inflexible. Like it would be like 20 K a year. That's what you're doing. That's it. When, when these are properly structured, I'm looking at what is the most, um, what is the highest priority here? For a lot of people, the highest priority is let's see, let's find a way to maximize the cash value growth on this thing because for different reasons, one of which is um, if anyone has any desire at all to potentially borrow against this, um, they can do so earlier. Um, if anyone has any desire to watch it, um, pay, start paying for itself, that will do that earlier. Like So most people I work with are looking at, is there a way to maximize the cash value? So basically when I create these things, it's a lever. Like that 20,000 premium that I have like a lever that can go from, are we pushing this lever to maximize the estate planning value as far down the road as possible, never planning on accessing the cash. So um, that's lever more towards the cash value. It actually makes a far more flexible policy where even the amount you put in every year could be quite flexible. Like I haven't run the numbers for a 20,000 policy, but like it could probably be anywhere between five and 20. Like you could say, Hey, Galen, 10 years out, I'm not going to do 20 anymore. You say, okay, drop it to five or anywhere in between start dropping it. It's like far more flexible. So, so yeah. So I mean, long story short is that these things are far more flexible than they used to be because companies have done a really good job of allowing the advisor with the client to really move that lever to make the policy work for what they want it to work for. So tell us what are the different vehicles that are in your in your handbag when you want to let's say maximize the the cash value, maximize the uh, the wealth building inside that cash value. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about what are the different levers for maximizing the estate part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So every company has, or I shouldn't say every, but all the ones that I've worked with and I'm licensed with lots of companies, they usually have like a, a, a starter where I can click somewhere that says, are we doing this more for the cash value or more for the death benefit? And we click that. 
And then on top of that, we can really start designing it in a way that um, we do what are called, depends on the company, but like an additional deposit option where you're putting more money towards the cash value than the default would allow. So it moves that lever where the it's going to drop the death benefit, but it's going to increase the cash value component. Um, so almost every company has a variation of that where you can kind of do an overarching um, shift from estate to cash, but then you can actually tweak it a little bit more. And then there's an advanced version of this where you tweak it even more uh, that we can talk about. So in, in that scenario where you want to add more cash value, we talk about, you know, the, the, the strategy of doing early cash value. We're doing the, mm -hmm. the strategy of doing paid up additions mm -hmm. uh, of, of trying to maximizing that, um, that, cash value sitting inside that quote unquote investment. So if I were doing the estate one where I want more money at the end for my children and I'm not, let's say I have different policies and I want to target different policies, different ways. Um, you mentioned you have different policies. So if I was your client and I say, you know what, I want policy one to do this and I want policy mm. two to do that. Those are the type of things you can really design to help with oh absolutely yeah and and like i said like the one policy that's more designed for the estate um would be the one where we push that lever towards maximum death benefit down the road and the one that's more for the cash value we'd push the lever in the other direction to maximize that cash value and the other thing that i'll point out is that um so it was a couple years ago 2017 um they made well they had made an announcement they'd made an announcement at some point in time that they're going to start uh, they're going to tweak the formulas for life insurance. So there's a technical term, it's called an MTAR line, which stands for maximum tax actuarial reserve. So the, 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 thing, the only thing that someone really needs to know about that is like, there is a line by which if an insurance policy were to cross that line, it would lose the tax benefits. And so an individual doesn't have to worry about this. And even I as a planner don't really have to worry about this. Companies have to worry about it. And it's kind of funny because when I became an advisor, the guy who was um, helping me, it was helping all of us pass our life insurance licensing. was like, don't you dare cross that MTAR line or you're going to be in trouble. And I thought it was something I had to worry about every day. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot of responsibility, but it's not something I have to worry about. The companies have to make sure that the products that they're designing are still staying underneath that line. Because if they were to design something that crossed the line, then it would lose the tax benefits. So um, companies are looking at ways to help um, uh, you know, have that line there, but also look at creative ways to creating policies where that line goes up a bit. So you can put more cash value into it and I'll get technical for a minute, but basically what you do is you take a whole life policy and you put on what's called a term rider. And that term rider helps increase the, uh, that helps push that line up. So more money can be put into the cash value. Now, the cool thing to talk about how this actually impacted the life of one of my clients was I was doing a retirement plan uh, for a client and we were looking at him accessing different things in retirement, like corporate savings and RSPs, TFSAs, whatever, like accessing different accounts in retirement. And one of the things he was looking at was a, a, a life insurance policy held by his corporation. And I said, I'm going to actually look at how much does this change? And this is actually when, when it was less flexible than it is now. But I remember clicking on a button and the amount of cash value that he was going to have 25 years from now was going to be so much higher that he was going to be able to retire four years earlier than if I hadn't clicked it. And I became a pretty big believer of clicking that button at that moment in time, because I thought, 
And to be, to be very honest about how I get paid, when I click that button, when I make the policy more flexible, I get paid significantly less on the product. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't bother me. Like I, I, I don't care. Like it doesn't bother me. Um, Cause that's another thing you'll hear about life insurance is you'll say, Oh yeah, life insurance. If you put a dollar in, if you put 10,000, let's say $20,000 into life insurance, your agent is going to make $24,000 that year. And that's not, that might've been accurate back when the policies were super inflexible and it was all like made the same way. But when we start messing with this lever and pushing it down, that changes drastically. So anyways, that's a bit of an aside where that's a common thing you'll hear is, Oh, the agent makes 110% of the premium that you're putting in. And that's, that's wildly inaccurate when it comes to these um, policies. Anyways. So I hit that button and I saw that he was going to be able to retire four years earlier. And I said, my gosh, like on what earth can I not click this button for this guy? Because he wasn't that interested in the long-term estate planning. Like he wanted it, right? Like he got it. He was like, I get that I'm going to have to, um, you know, my family's going to have to pay some taxes. But he said, I really do kind of want to look at this as a cash value component of my portfolio. Um, so I, I became a big believer of the button when I actually did the analysis of the positive impact it was going to have in a client's life. And the last thing I'll say is when we do start looking at those, um, those things of like pushing that line higher, the other cool thing that happens is the, um, the crossover point comes closer. So like this isn't this. So some people, sometimes people reach out to me after having watched YouTube videos, not usually mine, but someone else's. And they'll say, oh, this sounds like a bank account. Like if I put $10,000 in it, I can take $10,000 out tomorrow. And it's like, that's not accurate. It takes a while for that cash value to build up. But when we when we make these policies more flexible, like when I started as an advisor, the crossover point was like 13, 14 years. Like it was way out there. Like, excuse me, like as interest rates drop, that, that, that crossover point in general pushes out. It's like back in the nineties, I wasn't an advisor, but I've heard that it was like seven years, but now that interest rates have been low for so long, it's like 13 plus years. But when we tweak the policy, we can get back to four or five years and whether someone's going to access the money or not, it does help, I think, from a psychological level for someone to see at least what I've put in is there. Like I'm seeing that what I've put in is available for me now to borrow if I really need to, or just let it keep going if I don't need to borrow. Right. I think you brought up a few things that I think it's worth repeating. Uh, one, you know, for people who are interested in the investment side and the cash value, maximizing that MTAR line is what you're talking about. And increasing that MTAR line allows you uh, and your policies or your policyholder to uh, break even uh, much faster and also at a higher level with the same annual premium, which, which is important. It's with the same annual premium. Right. Absolutely. Um, you get to you get to break even and access that money much faster. Plus, you get to access that money more of it. Um, the second thing that uh, I think is important that you mentioned is this concept of borrowing from the cash value. Now, it, it, you, you, you can't put $10,000 in today and take $10,000 out tomorrow. As you've mentioned, it takes time for that to grow. Like any investment, it takes time to grow. Yeah. If you put 10000 in and you take 10000 out tomorrow, you're going to collapse the policy. And that's not what we want to do. But by increasing the MTAR and doing a few pulling on a few levers, you now are able to do that and access that money at a much earlier stage, which comes to the concept of banking on yourself or in infinite mm -hmm. banking, which we're not going to talk about right now. But but it comes back to the concept of the collateralization of that value so that you can use it now. So 
what I what I usually say to people is that term insurance is really a death insurance, mm-hmm. whereas whole insurance is a living insurance because mm-hmm. once that cash value is built up, you can actually use that cash value while you're still alive. So a whole life insurance is an actual life insurance, whereas a term insurance is a death insurance. And so you your estate only acts yeah. as it after you're dead. And so I think to put it in those terms is easier for people to understand. But mm. but I think the most important thing here is you as an advisor, as a planner, when you look at the entire plan together and you're working out the different goals and aspirations, you use different tools at your disposal. And many of those tools overlap. For example, the life insurance here overlaps. There's mm-hmm. a there's a tax component to it. There's a investment component to it, and there's a risk mitigation component to it. Um, and so, in your armatarium, in your belt of tools, it sounds like the insurance is a is a very very useful tool, sort of like your Swiss Army knife. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you hit it like the, we haven't talked a ton about the borrowing, but that's a big part of it. And I love that analogy of like term is more of a death insurance because you can't really do anything with term. Like if you don't die, you never get to do use any use it for anything. But with whole life insurance, you get both. Like if you pass away, your family gets a bunch of money. And if you, you live and watch the cash value grow, you can actually borrow. Um, the thing that makes it really unique is that um, if it's held by a corporation, you can actually use it as collateral to get a loan outside of the corporation. And I think that that's a concept that a lot of people maybe don't, it's a little bit of a tough concept to, to follow, but at the end of the day, you're basically using corporate dollars personally without having to, without it having to land on your T4 income. And a doctor that I know, um, I met with him years ago, we had lunch and we're, I was talking to him about the work I do. And he was already like, he was already doing all this stuff when I met him. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was like, oh, darn. I mean, it was good for him that he was already doing it, but I really liked the guy and I wanted to work with him as a client, but he was already like doing everything right. And he said to me, he said, the, the, the analogy that he used was when you use this strategy of the loan, you're basically turning your corporation into a tax-free line of credit. And he said that, and I was like, that's a really good way of putting it. And like, exactly. there, and, and there are some like, you know, I'm not going to go into the fact like there's, there's some, you know, you do have to do some things on your taxes. Like, I'm not saying that it's like an instant thing, but when all is said and done, you're, that's basically what you're doing is whatever cash value is built up inside of that policy, you can take it and you can collateralize it with a, with a banking institution outside of the corporation and access that money personally. And you only have to pay off the simple, like usually I encourage people to pay off the simple interest of the loan every year. But the cool thing is, is you can get to a point where the, pol- so you, the, the important thing to note is you're not taking the money out of the policy, right? The money Otherwise it would collapse. Still, exactly. The money is still left behind in the policy growing and you're still using that money. So your money is working for you in two places at the same time. It's growing on a tax deferred basis inside of the corporation and you're actually using it to live. And so like when people compare it to something like equities, you know, like, oh, like equities is a better investment. Yeah, but you can't do that exact same thing with equities. Like it is not the same thing at all. Like you, yeah, I just won't even go into it. So it's a very <laughs> unique, um, it's a very unique product in that sense where you can actually get money out of your corporation and use it personally. Um, and I think that, and, and, and it's such a high rated asset class 
that you can get at least 90% of the cash value available as a collateral loan because banks know they're like, we know that this money is like there. Like it's not like um, other assets where you can only borrow 50%, for example, because they're worried about the asset dropping in value and then the collateral doesn't work anymore. They, they Banking institutions will give you at least 90% um, of the cash value uh, as a loan. That's a really attractive strategy to physicians um, or anyone with a corporation, to be honest, um, because it, it's such a unique approach to finances. I, I, I want to point out a few things you've mentioned. So you mentioned life insurance or whole life as an asset class, and that that is a framework that most of us are not familiar with. Most of us, most physicians see life insurance as, you know, death insurance, because I buy term, it, it makes mm-hmm. a purpose. Uh, and then I'm self-insured, so I don't need it anymore. But everybody who sees it that way sees it as an expense, right? Mm. So term insurance is an expense. I pay for it after yeah. 50, 55 years old. I don't need it anymore. I don't, I don't renew it. Whatever money I paid is sunk. It's gone. It's an expense. Whereas whole life insurance is an asset because it holds value. And in fact, it increases in value until the very day you die. Yeah. So that's why you said whole life insurance is an asset and which is not what most people understand. So I wanted to make that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Cause I kind of forget like, and it took me a while to get it. Like when I became an advisor and people were explaining to me how this worked, cause you know, different specialists would come through and say, Hey, you should do group benefits. Hey, you should do critical illness. Hey, you should do whole life insurance. And people started saying things like, yeah, I've got a client that puts $50,000 a year into life insurance. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, like I put $50 a month into life insurance for my term insurance. Like what is happening here? Like I was so confused as to why someone would do that. So I dug deep into the product. I read all the financial statements from all the companies. I read every piece of marketing material. I grilled my specialist because I was like, this sounds a little too good to be true. Like you're telling me there's a dividend every year and you're telling me there's, you can borrow against it. I even met with some of the people who are the main decision makers for different companies for how the uh, pooled fund is managed. Like I really dug deep because I was like, if my clients are doing this, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm recommending that they do something that they're not going to regret 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Like it needs to be something solid. So if someone's not getting it a hundred percent, like, don't worry. Like it's, it's a, it's a bit of a complex concept that I spent a very long time understanding before I would recommend it to my clients. Um, but yeah, I remember the first time I heard someone say like, Oh yeah, I have clients who put, um, I mean, there's people who put like tons of money into these things. Like the, the largest policy that I, a couple of years ago, there was a policy that was sold for like a $7 million premium in the States. And the, the, the rumors are that it was a Silicon Valley person who wanted to protect against their estate, but also wanted a place to shelter money from taxes. So well, the first time I heard about this, I remember thinking like, I don't understand what you're talking about at all. Like why someone would put this much money into life insurance. But if you look at it as a deposit into an asset class, it makes sense if it's a percentage of what you're putting away in general. Like that's one thing I want to say really quickly is I don't tell people to put all their money into this. I say like, let's look at the big picture. Let's look at where everything should go. And what percentage does it make sense to put into this as like a place where your money is going to chug along very, very predictably with all these different benefits that are, you can borrow against it and everything. So, um, so yeah, but yeah, people do it all the time. People, people put, you know, multiple figure premiums into uh, whole life insurance every year. I put 
a five figure premium into it for my kids every year. So, I mean, every people use it for different reasons, but now that I get it, I do it. And I also help other people put it into place as well. Right. And, and I think people, people on our side in the medical community don't understand that because they don't understand whole life. Yeah. Uh, and for me, whole life insurance is just another asset class, but it's a great asset class where the growth is tax-free. When you take it out, it's tax-free. When it goes yeah. to your state, it's tax-free. There's really nothing on earth that does that other yeah. than your primary residence, right? Yeah. But, but beyond that, there's no other product. There's no equity product out there that does that. The, the last thing I'm going to talk about, I just want to bring it up because you mentioned it, uh, you mentioned many times holding the policy inside the corporation is it does increase the CDA account. It increases the credit uh, account, which is another way of another vehicle for, for physicians to minimize their tax burden at death. Um, so we're not going to go through in detail here of the CDA. I just wanted to bring it out there because that's another benefit of the whole life insurance is to maximize that CDA credit at the end. Oh yeah. Like some, absolutely. So yeah, the capital dividend account credit is a way that money flows out of the corporation tax-free effectively. Um, yeah. Some people are, do this in part because they see the value, like some accountants that really are on board with um, this strategy. It's because they see the value of increasing the, the capital dividend account for sure. Like they, that's like icing on the cake. Like, and I, as you said, like, we're not going to go into it and everything, but um, accountants who really get this really get this. <laughs> like right. but some accountants, like, yeah, they really get how this stuff works. And, and that's like, that's the thing that their eyes light up a bit when they're like, Ooh, how much is this going to increase the CDA by? Because then we can flow more assets out of the corporation tax preferential. And yeah, so that's, that's a really good thing to bring up for sure. Right. And it, it's funny because the accountants who get it, get it. Oh, yeah. Accountants who don't get it will never get it. And in yeah. fact, they tell their clients not to buy whole life insurance, unfortunately, yep. because they don't yep. get it. Yeah. So listen, we've had a long, long chat about <laughs> planning, about insurance, about tax planning. Thank you very much, Galen, for spending the entire time with me and my audience to talk about this. Okay, well, thank you very much again, Galen. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, you didn't get grilled too much. Uh, and uh, and thank you for, for playing this game with me. I, I know usually you're the interviewer, so I really much appreciate your time today. No, thank you. It was amazing. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the content and the second part of my interview with Galen Nuttall. So again, thank you for listening. If you like this podcast and this episode, please share it with your friend, your colleagues, your neighbors, and even your pets. Thank you very much. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.